Hi, you're listening to the Full Stack Educator Podcast. We provide relevant resources to new and aspiring independent school leaders to help you grow, succeed at work, and have a positive impact on the lives of students. I'm Michael. And I'm Matt. On this podcast, we have insightful conversations with leaders from across all areas of independent school education. Welcome to part two of our conversation with Lawrence Alexander, the founding director of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at Carney Sando and Associates. The role of director of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion is increasingly recognized as a key senior leadership role within independent schools. In the second half of our conversation, Michael and Lawrence discuss what aspiring independent school leaders should know about forming a job description, interviewing candidates, and how to support a new director of diversity, equity, and inclusion in their first few months on campus. Here is part two of our conversation with Lawrence Alexander. So starting to shift gears into thinking about, um, you know, actually hiring for the position. So we talked about prior to the position, where does somebody start with a job description and, and duties for the, for the position? If this is the first time that someone's hiring for this role, uh, where does a head go to get information on sort of best practices for how to, how to structure a position like this? Yeah, I think there are a couple of answers. Number one, uh, at Carney Sando and Associates, this is the work that we do. And we have hundreds of job descriptions for directors of equity and inclusion. And so we're happy to be a resource. And yet, I would say the first stop is having this conversation at the board level and at the school level. Because when you go back to that Venn diagram analogy that I made, a community needs to really wrestle with how much agency this person has. We talk a lot about agency in the college admissions process with students making a differentiation between grit and agency. Grit means uh, that I work really hard. Um, agency means I have the authority to enact change. And so a hiring manager, a community really needs to think about believing this person is going to work really hard, but what kind of agency will they really have to make change? And what that looks like at a K-12 school where you have three divisions may be different than what it looks like in a high school, because now this person needs to work with academic departments and other administrative departments. So I think more than the innards and fine details of the job description, a school community really needs to think about the level of agency that this person has. And even at schools who have had the position for years, they have a job description, but that person has no agency. Mm. So we can certainly be a support when folks are ready to type it up, but when they need to draw it up, communities need to spend some real time in conversation with their board and with their senior leadership. Yeah, that's great. And it's really great to know that that resource exists through Carney Sando too. I, lo- I love the conversation about agency though. And that's a really, that's a good framework to which to think about that. Appreciate you sharing that. Another aspect I think that can be maybe anxiety producing for some, for some independent school leaders is trying to think of how to structure an interview process. Uh, can we talk about once someone's on campus, how do we give them a transparent view of culture um, and, and a clear idea of how far along the faculty are in terms of DEI work? And, and also just what, what should a, a good interview process, this kind of work be where we can be transparent with the candidate, but also, you know, be interviewing them to see what kind of what kind of work they'll be able to do at our school. There is a truth that independent schools need to first face 
about the director of equity and inclusion position. And that is they have, we have a corrupted cultural inheritance. Because independent schools were not founded on inclusion, they weren't founded with the position of director of equity and inclusion. Many people who are now in these roles come into them through that corrupted cultural inheritance. I know it was the way I got my position. The way it happens is you're usually a woman, a person of color, someone from the LGBTQIA community, or an upstanding white person who speaks up in too many meetings and raises the fact that we need to do this work and they tag this title onto your current job. I wasn't hired as a director of equity and inclusion. I was hired as the director of college counseling. But when I show up as a person of color in a state that's 96% white at a school where I'm the only faculty of color and my daughter is a freshman, this work becomes personal to me. And so I inherit a job without any extra pay and a lot of extra responsibility and off I go. Our schools didn't start with the intention to create this position because they didn't start with the intention to have diversity at their schools. Therefore, we can't even approach this position in an evaluative perspective the way that we do other independent school positions. And let's be honest, we're going to want to know how long has this person been in this position full time? Okay, we have to reckon with the fact that most of these positions are not full time positions. (laughs) Um, People are going to want to know. What other independent schools has this person worked at in this position? Oh, yeah. Most independent schools don't have this position. And so there's almost this independent school uh, template. We put on the interview process wanting to know what other uh, experience they have in this role, what other full-time experience they have in this role, maybe what other prestigious or selective independent and boarding schools people have done this at. And you have to recognize this isn't a position that is prolific because it's a position that most people don't want. And so we need to uncouple some of that independent school vetting from this position and recognize that there are going to be a number of great candidates who come from within our profession. And now, because a lot of us have toiled through making it look good, there are a lot of folks who are outside the profession who won't have independent school experience in equity and inclusion until we give it to them. So for me, that's, that's the piece of framing. Um, I think when you get to interviewing for the position, to your point about transparency, I think when you get to faculty, that's where it goes to folks doing their work. And while some of it is cultural and some of it is identity, I think it's important to note that until the work of equity and inclusion is centered in the classroom, it'll never work. Many schools tolerate, air quotes, this work because it doesn't mess with their curriculum. And yet, many students from underrepresented backgrounds, our international students as well, suffer trauma in the classroom because the academy doesn't include contributors who look like them. And it's not a matter of adding flavor (laughs) um, or add-ons to the curriculum. It's a matter of teaching the full story. And so it's going to be important before you bring this person onto campus to have a great conversation about the inclusive classroom and curriculum with faculty. In that regard, 
that is also a lot of work I'm doing with faculty on cultural fluency and inclusive classroom practices. I just finished a training uh, with the New Hampton School up in New Hampshire on this exact topic. You know, I'm going to display my own ignorance here, but, I, you know, I, I've always sort of thought about this role as being, you know, schools get to a point where they want to address these issues. And so they hire for this role to help them do that work. But it sounds like you're kind of flipping that on its head and saying in order for this role to be successful, you really have to do uh, all this work up front in order for someone to come in and, and even have something to work with. Is, is that right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, we just came out of the holidays for some folks and part of some people's tradition is making New Year's resolutions. And, you know, there's nothing like a good uh, New Year's resolution in gym membership. And hiring a director of equity and inclusion is like hiring a personal trainer. The idea sounds good. So they put you on the treadmill. Yeah. And so there are many schools who think that this position sounds good. And then they get on the treadmill. And they have buyer's remorse. You can cancel a membership. It's hard to cancel a position. Right. Let's talk for a minute about once someone's hired. You, you said earlier that at Carney Sando, you focus on the first 100 days. Um, let's talk a little bit about what to do once someone's hired to support them. So what do heads need to be thinking about uh, in terms of continued support and supporting, you know, the first hundred days, but also just in general, uh, in the long run, what, what do heads need to be thinking about? Yeah, there are four areas. Um, as I thought about this, one is wellness. The second is professional development. The third is mentorship. And the fourth is executive coaching. Wellness. I think it's important to know that doing the work of equity and inclusion particularly for practitioners who share a vulnerable and underrepresented identity within the community is traumatic because the professional is personal. Right. When I worked at the White Mountain School, I was not only a director of equity and inclusion. I was also a man of color and a husband and a parent. And I did all of that while being a person of color. These weren't just conversations for me. This was me. It's easier to take off your business card and role and title in any other work, but equity and inclusion is uniquely personal. So thinking about this person's wellness is important. And I'll name it as courageously as I mean to, with as much candor as I say it, particularly at independent schools, if you're a person of color, and I can say it for myself, it gets tiring being black for white people. Mm. And, and what that means is we get tired of being the sole racial representative. We get tired of answering all the questions about Martin Luther King and Black History Month and slavery and Black Lives Matter and all the other issues that you would not sit down and center a white person, a straight person, or a male in the middle of campus and ask them. People of color are centered and asked to be experts on all things their people in ways in which their white colleagues are not. So in that wellness pillar, a head of school is gonna really need to look into the eyes of the challenge of wellness for this person and not blink. The second piece is professional development, and I really don't just mean money. Again, when you look around the office, 
in the community, there are many people who do admissions. There are many people who do teaching and learning. You can kind of go on, so on and so forth. Most times that director of equity and inclusion is looking in the mirror at themselves, in the community at least. So it's gonna be very important to help them develop a village and a, an in-group. And that in-group is gonna be outside the community. So not just supporting with money, but supporting in time and logistics to allow that person to develop a sense of best practices, to breathe with practitioners who are going through some of the same issues just outside of the campus. Um, I think the mentorship, again, is important, not just for the professional part, but a lot of what equity and inclusion work is about is about disposition management. You're managing a lot of uh, fragility in a community. You're managing a lot of nascent understanding about the work of equity and inclusion. You need some folks who have traveled this midnight road in a rainstorm to help you know that it's going to be okay. The fourth piece that I think is important is the executive coaching. Um, we do this a lot for heads of school. We do this a lot um, for deans of admission on the higher ed side to think about someone coming alongside this director of equity and inclusion for perhaps the first year of their work to help them with actually doing more than surviving in this role, which is an accomplishment in the first year, but helping to lead that organizational change and development is gonna be important. So those are the four things I think about when I think about supporting this person um, when they're hired. Is there a resource you'd suggest in terms of where to go to find qualified executive coaches to support this kind of work? Yeah, and while I believe um, in my heart of hearts that uh, we have a lot of uh, colleagues and peers who do this work, at the firm, uh, we have an executive coaching practice where we support heads of school, deans of admission, and um, has newly grown as a opportunity for us directors of equity and inclusion. I currently coach a couple of myself. And that, I think that's a resource that our listeners will definitely be interested in. Because like you said, it sounds really important, especially for the first year. Um, Absolutely. So when it comes to uh, work with faculty, uh, when the director begins working with faculty, how can a head support the work of the director when things start to get heated or tensions start to rise uh, when faculty members begin to feel uncomfortable, which I feel like is inevitable when people uh, begin doing this kind of work. What does a head need to be thinking about and strategizing ahead of time for when that happens? Yeah, I think it, it's important to be said that the chief inclusion officer in the school community is the head of school. If that is truly the case and truly the commitment, as faculty and as administrators come to the head of school about the uh, pain <laughs> associated with growing, right. this chief inclusion officer will help them in the way that I remember from when I coached sports. There's a difference between um, pain and an injury. I used to always have a coach tell me, if you're feeling pain, get back in the game. If you're injured, let's take you out. Oh, that's good. None of the work of equity and inclusion will injure you. Might cause you some pain, but as long as it's pain and not an injury, get back in the game. And so I think this, the strongest recommendation and encouragement, and I also know appreciation um, I can ask for from heads of school is to really feel your feet in your shoes and your spine in your back when it comes to supporting the work of equity and inclusion, because you're going to need to spend some well um, cash shade, social, cultural, and political capital to support this work. But in the same way that you use it in other areas, 
you're going to need to be prepared to spend it to support the work of equity and inclusion. So we talked uh, about a few things with respect to supporting the role once they're there. What else, what else needs to be talked about? What else, what other things need to be considered in terms of continued support? I think that a community is most supportive of equity and inclusion when they see it as much as uh, they, when they see it as a non-negotiable in the way that they see other things as a non-negotiable for a school that prides itself in its sports the athletics budget is never an issue because it's important, it's resonant, and it makes a difference in the community. For school communities who pride themselves on their academic program and academic excellence, there's no price that's too high to support their academic program. When a school community sees the work of equity and inclusion as elemental to their survival and to their mission, they'll support it that way. As the racial, ethnic, and socioeconomic diversity in our country shifts, the member groups who used to afford and support independent schools are declining. And the groups who will come into the affluence to attend independent schools will raise a great question. Why? And if equity and inclusion and supporting an inclusive and diverse student community isn't at the top of that list, then your new demographic, which can can afford independent schools and can afford boarding schools, won't. Not because they don't have the money, but because they don't feel the support. Yeah, that's a great point. Well, thank you for sharing your, your expertise with us today. There are three things that I ask everyone at the end of uh, the end of our podcast, and they are, what should people be reading? What should people be listening to? And how can we connect with you? Uh, how can listeners connect with you further? There are a couple of books that I think are helpful in this space uh, for different reasons, but I'll list them. On understanding whiteness as a construct and the ways in which people of color Um, experience microaggressions, there's a book by Austin Channing Brown. She's a wonderful author, a woman of color, and the book is called I'm Still Here, Black Dignity in a World Made for Whiteness. Uh, There's a book that I use for my implicit bias trainings in higher education by a gentleman named Tony Jack called A Privileged Poor um, on the ways in which selective institutions are failing students from underrepresented backgrounds. Um, I am a fan of the work of Robin DiAngelo and White Fragility. Um, I do love Debbie Irving's work with Waking Up White. Ta-Nehisi Coates has, uh, I think, his seminal work, um, Between the World and Me. Michael Eric Dyson penned a book, uh, Tears We Cannot Stop, A Sermon to White America. And I think Tim Wise does a great job. Um, His book, White Like Me, is a great first stop for folks um, in the work. In terms of things folks should be listening to, I think Chimamanda Adichie's Danger of a Single Story, which is both a TED Talk and available on YouTube, is great. And in terms of podcasts, I really do enjoy listening to Third Space by Jen Court. And how folks can get in contact with me, they can certainly go to our firm's website, www.carnysando.com, or you can email me directly. That's lawrence.alexander at carnysando.com. That's L-A-W. R-E-N-C-E dot Alexander, A-L-E-X-A-N-D-E-R at Carney Sando 
www.thinkandgrowthbook.com. Michael, this has been a phenomenal time in getting to know you and to talk about the work. This is a great podcast you have here. I would like to commend you on bringing this great platform to bear. Thank you so much for uh, being willing to share with us today. And I'm going to go ahead and put links to all the resources you just mentioned in the show notes. And so people will have access to those. So thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Full Stack Educator podcast. We hope that today's conversation helped you grow as an independent school leader. Be sure to check out our show notes for links to resources mentioned in the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, rate it, leave a review, and share it with a friend. Episodes of this podcast are released bi-weekly. You can follow and engage with Matt McGee and Michael Amusio on LinkedIn.